The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, the Prime Minister says he wants to reset number 10, but will he succeed? Two vaccines are now on the horizon, but should they be made mandatory? And finally, is there a problem with addressing strangers by their first name? First up, with the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, Boris Johnson says he wants to reset number 10. But what does this actually mean and will he succeed? Our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, takes a look in her cover piece this week and she joins me now together with Craig Oliver, who was number 10 communications director under David Cameron. Katie, you say in your piece this week that all the Tory MPs that you meet at the moment have a spring in their step. What exactly is causing that? What it is, is not even the very good vaccine news, which has definitely boosted morale. It's not, uh, you know, the the huge sums of money being spent by the Treasury, but it's the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. And I think it's hard to understate how well that has been received in the Parliamentary Party. Those Vote Leave alumni who had really tight grip in Downing Street were not universally liked. They didn't have a very big fan club amongst Tory MPs. But what's struck me is the fact that now when you pick up the phone to a Tory MP or a minister, they all seem to think this is great news, not only in in terms of party management but for their own agenda they think that the prime minister is suddenly going to listen to all their great ideas and if I'm going to be a bit of a cynic and I'm listening to someone from the One Nation group saying that someone from the Northern Research group saying that uh, a libertarian who wants lockdown to end immediately saying that I'm not sure how long this celebration is going to go on and I think someone might have got the hopes up a bit as, as one uh, MP put to me you know we've had the party now it's the morning after and everyone's a little bit Bit dazed. And Craig, what did you make of the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane? Well, look, it's clearly huge news, and I think that it has created a massive power vacuum at the heart of number 10. And that vacuum, as Katie was saying in a really good piece, has caused a lot of people to be optimistic, a lot of them to feel that maybe things can start going their way again. I think in reality, Katie's also right in what she just said, is that actually there's a danger that after a few announcements that are looking like the government's getting back on course, that actually there isn't a solid centre there. And a lot of people are focusing on the staff that Boris Johnson needs to employ and that he needs a kind of CEO figure for Downing Street. And I think that they're slightly getting it wrong. Unless Boris acts as a CEO, unless he makes absolutely crystal clear this is the tone and the direction that he's going to set, then ultimately there will be chaos that returns. Katie, one of the points you mentioned in your piece is that there may well be a cabinet reshuffle on the cards and then you also mentioned this chief of staff position. What do you think was likely to see happen on that front? Yeah, so we know there's a big push for chief of staff. We also know it's a hard position to fill because it's not a new position. It's been around for a few months. We've heard people who've been approached and apparently turned it down. Uh, we also know that there's lots of strong opinions. Lee Kane was in line to get it and there was a big backlash. So I think it's an important appointment. As far as I understand it, 
cabinet ministers seem to say, you know, take your time, have a long process, we can do this in the new year. But I think Boris Johnson is quite impatient. He wants to get it done. He wants to show this not drift right now. I do think we can overstate the importance of one person. And what I found quite interesting writing the piece was, you know, quite seasoned ministers making the point that yes you need to have a chief of staff who can work with lots of people and bring some grip but one appointment is not going to fix this and their point was you've got to have lots of different structures in place people working better together so I think we can focus too much on that I think you probably need the chief of staff before you do the reshuffle probably but I think looking a little bit further down or I suppose being a bit more negative a few people have said to me that they think the problem is Boris Johnson and the question now is what you kept hearing from figures in Downing Street in recent months is the Prime Minister struggled to make a decision. He'd make a decision, he'd speak to someone else, he'd make a different decision, perhaps go back on it. And they think some of the U-turns were not so much down to a lack of uh, functional number 10, though they do think number 10 was dysfunctional. But the fact that Boris Johnson is quite a fluid person, it's hard to define exactly what he wants. And therefore, I think the big test is, is that the problem? Because if so you know this makeover might not be enough we might still see this or is the other side right which is actually you just had people grabbing too much control and I I think that is one where you know annoying phrase but only time will tell but I think the chief of staff can only play so much of a role in this. Craig our leader this week is fairly critical of Boris and suggests that this new agenda is just a displacement activity for a prime minister who's run out of ideas do you think that's fair? Look, I think they're pretty big things. I mean, the announcement in terms of the environment and jobs and the defence stuff today, it's big stuff. And it's actually quite significant, I think. The problem is it'll only carry you so far in the modern environment. I think Katie's absolutely right. The danger is, is that the focus on having a chief of staff or having a figure that can come in and change everything is that you're sort of treating the symptoms, not the disease. The big question is, is Boris going to actually step in here and is he going to listen and lead? The listen part of the job is that he's alienated a lot of parts of the Conservative Party because of Dominic Cummings' style. And a lot of them felt that he would, they were just dismissed, they were treated aggressively. And there's going to be a huge amount of energy, I think, has to go into winning over those MPs again. And it's a job like painting the fourth bridge. Once you've finished it, you have to go back to the beginning and start again. I think in terms of leadership, he needs to be absolutely crystal clear. Here is my plan. Here is how it's going to be executed. And after that, that is when a chief of staff could come in and make a huge difference. They can be your kind of representative on earth. But if your representative on earth doesn't have a direct line to God who has a clear view of things, then you're always going to end up in trouble. Katie, both you and I have written about Boris's fiance Carrie as well as part of our pieces this week. And you say in your piece that she's established herself as a power broker and that it's sort of now common to hear politicians talking about her views when discussing the new cabinet. Do we know what she thinks should change in the cabinet? What I think has changed from two or three weeks ago is, well, A, you could pick up a paper and there wouldn't be a think piece on Carrie Simmons in it. And I think that it's now become so common to see that as a side to any political discussion in the media, newspapers, as you say, there's pieces in the magazine this week touching on it. So I think that given that person was reported to have opposed Lee Kane being promoted to chief of staff, in that process, they have become someone who I think are viewed now as to be you know, a valid political player whose thoughts are going to be taken into account when people are trying to guess what's happening. So 
and I was struck this week that when you're talking, saying, oh, who might get promoted in the cabinet reshuffle? Quite a few Tory MPs were saying, oh, you know, Sandra Javid will, Carrie Simmons used to work with him and they get on well. And Boris Johnson also gets on well with Sandra Javid. So I don't think Carrie is <laughs> fully in, in charge of this cabinet reshuffle. I don't think that's the point so much as the fact that I think it is striking that people now just openly talk about that as a person's opinions when they're talking about positions. And I think that it's probably within Sajid Javid where it's most apparent. But I think there's other reasons Sajid Javid might come back into the cabinet, which is that links back to a feud with Dominic Cummings. You know, when he, the Vote Leave team wanted him to get rid of his aides, he didn't want to do that. So he left the role of Chancellor and Rishi Sunak came in. So I think it would also suggest this kind of reset moment where they're putting old squabbles aside and it's a more cohesive United Tory party. I think the question is, would Sajid Javid only take a great office of state because people are saying foreign secretary but the last time I checked Dominic Raab was there uh, I don't know where you go from foreign secretary you know chancellor's not taking them would he want home secretary pretty Patel but you get into quite a difficult place so I think one rumor going around is perhaps Sajid Javid would do something like education secretary if it's a briefer that person has a genuine interest you can see where they might go back on a level lower than their last one regardless and I, I think that's the question. Craig do you think that people are wrong to criticize Boris for listening to Carrie and you to work closely with David Cameron, is, is it normal for a partner to, to give advice to a prime minister? Yeah, I think it's always normal for a partner to give advice. I think that the danger is, is when it becomes public, and I think it's bad news for you guys, what I'm about to say, but whoever starts going into number 10 and sorting things out has got to shut people up. There is way too much blabbing to the press. There is way too much stories about tears and tantrums and who's up and who's down, and I felt upset because of this, and I felt upset about that. That ultimately just becomes really toxic. It's great copy. I love reading it in The Spectator and I love reading great it in other newspapers and magazines too. But in terms of being number 10, forget about it. You've got to stop it and they've got to stop doing that. And I think that Carrie, I know her. I used to work very closely with her. She's a very bright, very capable, shrewd person. But I'm sure she would know as well that she doesn't necessarily want to be out there and look like she's dictating policy because ultimately... That's not great. And that is down to Boris, really. He's got to really step up and try and turn the screw on people and say, look, stop talking, stop being a leaky ship. Let's make sure we're very clear in what we're doing. Let's make sure we're focused and let's make sure that I'm listening and leading. Tricky thing to pull off. But Katie, it sounds as if MPs sort of feel like they can talk more freely now. So is is that going to be a harder thing to do without Dominic Cummings there? I think it's going to be really hard. And I think if we're talking about this reshuffle... Look, Dominic Cummings did not have a charm offensive with Tory MPs and clearly things he'd previously said and things he said while he was there, such, you know, I don't know who you are, (laughs) were unnecessarily abrasive and made people get their back up. However... I think that if you're looking at where lots of the discontent has come from, you can also look at the last reshuffle. There are lots of Tory MPs who thought they should have been promoted, who are really annoyed about that how that reshuffle went. And lots of them are men, and they think women were promoted over them. And they were all told, you know, don't worry, be calm, it'll be fixed in the next reshuffle. It's hard to overstate how many MPs think they're being promoted in this reshuffle. I think, I think we could be... <laughs> I think, Katie, that's what you've got to be be careful of in terms of reshuffles is that when you think it through for every person that you make happy in a reshuffle there are several people who are made very unhappy you're sacking people you're not promoting people who feel that they the world deserves their wisdom and it causes real problems so he may enter into a world more world of pain even though there are some obvious people that need to be moved in and some who probably need to be moved out 
Yeah, and I just say just briefly on that. So I was talking to one such Tory MP who feels they were messed over last time and they've been promised it's going to be fixed this time. And they said, if I don't get promoted this time, I am just going to go tonto. I'm going to go tonto. I don't care. I'm just going to go for it. I will be, you know, the next, you know, Steve Baker. I will just go for it. And they're quite a conciliatory person. And I said, oh, wow, so that's, that's interesting. I was like, but better because Dominic Cummings is there. And they're like, they were glad Dominic Cummings was gone, but they felt more able to go tonto now if they don't get what they want and if you're joining the various dots now I don't get too into someone's psyche but I think that's a slightly worrying sign I think Tory MPs feel empowered they think they're going to be listened to but I also think a little bit of the fear's gone and I don't think you can rule the government by fear like Craig will know this more than me I don't think it's sustainable in the long run but I think the fact this person thought they don't get what they want they can now just go mad and it's going to be okay does show you that you know the preemptive celebrations are that they're preemptive I agree and I think it comes from the top like is there a culture of leaking right at the heart of government or blabbing at the heart of government and if they see that there clearly is then they feel that they should be able to do that too and it's a hackneyed point but I think it does bear repeating that there is a vast difference between governing and campaigning and in campaigning you can irritate loads of people because it's a time limited thing you can make enemies because it's all over quite soon and you move on in government things go on forever it's nuanced it's complicated a lot of decisions are unpopular or even more unpopular choices and the reality is it's just complicated and difficult and you have to be able to move from a campaign state of mind to a governing state of mind and i think that that is a very obvious point that's been repeated many times but i think it's something that this new the administration is going to have to take very very seriously thank you katie and craig the spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Next, with two vaccines on the horizon, whether the jabs really will end the pandemic depends on how many people actually take them. Sam Leith, our literary editor, asks in his column this week whether vaccines should be made mandatory. And he joins me now, together with Professor Mona Siddiqui, who sits on the Nuffield Council on Bioethics and is a regular of the BBC's Moral Maze. Sam, in your column this week, you suggest that the ferocious culture wars over lockdown and mask wearing maybe is nothing compared to those over vaccination. Do you think we're about to have the mother of all battles develop over this issue? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, the point I suppose I was trying to make was just that, you know, we think, woohoo, at last we're out of the woods and actually we're just heading into what I think could be a very different set of woods because of course the problem with vaccination is that it works collectively you know it, its real value is a collective thing I you know if you want to get the disease really under control you need a certain percentage of people to sign up for the vaccine and already we're seeing the first first shakings of a sort of culture war there I mean, I think we had Lawrence Fox saying you know Matt Hancock if you want to inject me with this you're going to need to bring four burly police officers you know and that kind of attitude and you know versus a very ferocious backlash against that which says you know how dare you you're you know ignoring the common good in favour of your own selfish objections you know you can see how these these battle lines are being drawn up Mona, in Sam's piece, he sort of outlines the, the debate as being kind of the difference between the liberties of the individual and the needs of the community. Which do you think will triumph when it comes to corona? 
I don't think that the issue of liberties of the individual versus the collective is a new thing. I think the issue with the virus is simply that this is the first time that so many of us are being equally affected. I mean, I don't mean necessarily in equal measures, but we're all affected by and, and looking to governments and states for policies and guidance as to how to manage this. I'm not so persuaded, Sam. I think, that people like Lawrence Fox will be able to drive the narrative here. I think there are always going to be people who will say, I don't want the government to do this, I don't want the state to do this. But my own instinct is that once people realise you know, once it is actually rolled out and if it is safe and it's gone through all the regulations, that people will decide for themselves that this is a collective good. It's a collective good because it's a personal good. You know, it's, it's not, we're not doing it out of charity. We're doing it actually out of protecting ourselves first and then realizing that through our self-protection, others will be protected. There's always going to be people who are going to say, no, you can't force this. But then vaccines have been around a long time and we haven't been able to force everyone to take vaccines. That's true. I mean, this debate has been around, I think, since the 18th century. Sam, do you think it's getting worse with social media or... Is it just that people are perhaps more aware of the debate these days? I don't know. I mean, I think certainly social media makes all debates worse, doesn't it? So this would probably fall under that category. I, th- I think what's interesting is because that debate, as Mona says rightly, and as I think I, I acknowledged in my column, you know, the, the collective versus the individual you know, is almost the fundamental issue in politics. And what's so fascinating to step back for a second about the virus and all the things that come out of it is that that suddenly made a very, very concrete obvious, real-world practical issue rather than a kind of abstract, you know, game-theoretical or, or moral-philosophical question. And I think, you know, the fear is that obviously, you know, as I said sort of jokingly in my, my column, you know, we're not going to expect to see, you know, vaccine police kicking in people's doors and making sure they're jabbed. It's going to be in the territory of behavioural science, of, the, of a kind of nudge-unit type Effort. But no question, the government's going to want to see as high a level of compliance as possible. And I think rightly, you know, for all of our good, the question is how it's going to finesse that without having, you know, particularly with that amplification that, you know, the blowhard positions get on social media, an accusation that it's being sort of totalitarian or nanny statish or Stalinist or, or any of these other things. I think that it's a question of a larger issue of trust in the government and the vaccine issue just becomes one of those aspects as to how the government has actually managed this whole issue and that's not just uh, UK-wide it's in devolved governments as well and so the vaccination the kind of visceral aspect of it that it's something that is invasive in you physically actually draws everything almost to a climax here, which is, well, this is the last thing you're going to do and tell us and botch this up. And, you know, this is me being physically affected by your your mismanagements. And I do think that prior to thinking about how you manage the vaccine and distribute it, the government really does have to win the trust of the population as to not only the regulation of the vaccine, but its efficacy. And at the moment, we're hearing all these stories about different vaccines, and none of us know whether any of them are really passing the the mustard here. But when you think about the vaccines are actually the most effective public health interventions in the world, other than clean water, that kind of puts it into perspective. Yeah, it's a very good point about the, the physical invasiveness of it as well. I mean, I think, funny, you know, we don't regard it as a totalitarian nightmare that there's universal fluoridation in the water supply, which is 
a mass public health intervention, which unless you're going to drink nothing but bottled water, you can't really opt out of. Sure. You know, you know we're relaxed about that. But when it comes to the idea of sticking needles in our arms, you know, we're suddenly that six-year-old in the doctor's surgery, you know, having to be coaxed in with a sticker. <laughs> but again, I would say I had my kids vaccinated. I didn't think twice about how giving them all the, you know, the usual jabs that you do in the first two or three years of their life. And I think, as I say, this is the first time all of us collectively are thinking about a vaccine as opposed to just being told you have to have this if you want to travel there or for whatever health reasons. And so we're actually seeing live a vaccine being made in front of our eyes and thinking, what are the consequences of this vaccine in a way we've never thought about vaccines before? Yeah. Mind you, as you rightly point out, the problem is there's a trade off here, isn't there, that in order to get this vaccine into circulation as soon as possible because we're having an emergency right now. I'm not saying that they're having to cut corners, but they're certainly, you know, having to roll it out faster than you would ordinarily roll out a vaccine and without necessarily 100% certainty about what the long-term effects are, how it interacts with other medicines and so on. And I think that gives some legitimate, you know, ammunition to those who want to say, look, I really don't think the government has a right to tell me to take this experimental vaccine. And, and, and the government isn't doing that at the moment. No, it's not. But it's interesting that Matt Hancock, presumably for fear of reversing himself for the bazillionth time, <laughs> has, hasn't expressly ruled out making it compulsory, which I think is quite a bold, a bold and noticeable yeah, thing but, to do. Yeah, but, you know, again, Sam, I would say that these are, these are sentences that make good headlines. How do you actually make something compulsory other than running around people and jabbing them in the arm? Which <laughs> well, yes. For, no, you know, that's just never going to happen. But I do think, well, at least I hope it's never going to happen. But I do think that, that, that there's a kind of fear factor as well that, you know, we've lived with insecurity for so long, unless you instill a little bit of fear into people that this is good for you, how are people going to know it's good for? And it's almost like infantilizing the public a little bit. And then I was going to ask you, how, it's a slightly different thing, but how, I mean, this could all be a slightly moot point, couldn't it, if we can't actually get enough vaccines or you know, even the flu jab this year, though people weren't able to get it. I mean, how do you think they'll go about actually rolling it out in the first place? Well, I mean, I think they've already got their priorities, haven't they? Care homes, the elderly. I mean, I think that, you know, people who are working at the, the, the kind of cold face of health service, they, they really should be the priority. I absolutely do think that people who are generally healthy, whatever age group they're in, they should not be a priority. But, you know, I would imagine that the government will again botch this up because it would be in such a rush to say that we're doing the right thing, we're protecting our most vulnerable without thinking that vulnerability doesn't come with necessarily age and vulnerability can be caused by lots of things. I'm not saying it's an easy task. I do think though, when it comes to actually distributing it, that each nation state really has to look carefully at what it, what it does, because I don't think any nation state at the moment is thinking about justice and global distribution. And that's a different topic. But if we're not talking about that, then we have to be really careful about how we distribute it within the nation. And Sam, what do you think of this argument that I've heard a few people making that they might want to have the vaccine, but not right now, but maybe in like a year or so once it's been tested a bit? Do you think that's a fair, fair position? Well, I can see why people, why people say that. I mean, my own instinct is to say, you know, a lot of people have gone through the trials just to get the vaccine to work by submitting themselves to something experimental with unknown risks for the common good. And regarding, if you like, the first wave of vaccine rollout as being, to some extent, an experiment, I would think as a you know, relatively healthy person, you know, it would be a public good and a public duty to, to take that risk on myself for the common good. And I 
I would be up to that. But I know other people don't feel that way. I think my wife's nervous about it and for the same reason. And, you know, I feel I can need to respect that, if only for the harmony of my own household. <laughs> and then finally, I've been wondering this because I, I had corona and I got a message from the NHS saying, you've got it. I mean, pe people who've had, had it, will they have to have a vaccine? And also people who feel that they've had it, even if they haven't necessarily had a positive test, would, would they also have to have the vaccine? Well, interestingly, so my son had it. He tested positive just in the last couple of weeks. So he was isolating. He's a, he's a young junior doctor. So he had to isolate. His flatmate also showed symptoms but tested negative. I don't know where they stand in the queue of this. They'll be working with people who are vulnerable, who do have COVID in wards. But should they, you know, where does it work in terms of immunity? If you've already had it, I don't know any of this. I hear new things every day and I don't know where we are with the actual virus itself or where we are with, you know, the priorities for vaccination. I don't know, but I do think that people who are working with the most vulnerable people in terms of physical health should have priority, should have prior access. And I say this only because I think that health should be seen as a universal right but it's not, everything costs. So I think the morally, I think priority should be given to those who if they contracted it may die from it or become seriously ill. A lot of people have contracted it and shown very mild symptoms. How do you assess that? How do you even get people to queue for that? I don't know what the government has in place for that. Sal and Mona, thank you very much for joining us. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And finally, the historian Guy Waters points out in this week's issue that the surname is all but dead. Whether it's talking to your plumber or being interviewed on the Today programme, you'll almost always be addressed by or address others with their first names. But is this impolite? Guy Waters joins me now, together with The Spectator's go-to etiquette guru, Mary Killen, of Dear Mary fame. Guy, or should I perhaps say Mr Waters, you write about the death of the surname in this week's issue. Can you tell us why you're so concerned? I'm concerned about it because I think that the increasing use or the almost ubiquitous use of everybody's first names gives a sense of intimacy that we simply don't need to have with certain people. You know, I'm not I'm not being a snob. I'm not being pompous. I'm, I don't want to see it sound like an old fart. I just think that, you know, too often we sort of deal with people and we call them, you know, Adam or Bob or Jim or Guy or Lara or, or, or mate, even worse still. And... And, and they sort of think, you know, you're friends and you're not because when everything goes wrong, they feel even more betrayed. And I, I just think that surnames create distance and detachment that I think are qualities that are both essential, but also all too lacking. So it's a kind of heartfelt plea to restore that sense of distance between ourselves. I know that sounds really unfriendly and nasty, but I assure you it's not. <laughs> Mary, do you think that Guy is being pompous by suggesting that we use surnames? I think he's got a point. It devalues the currency of real friends if everyone is called by their first name. And I know from personal experience of going to the Caribbean, which I do quite often in the line of work, where I'm called Miss Mary and my boss is called Mr Stewart, even though his first name is Butch, 
it just makes you happy when you have people addressing you by Miss Mary or, you know, Mr Mackay or whatever the names are of the journalists. Everyone loves it because it's, one, it's old-fashioned and two, it sort of emanates a certain respect, so you feel a bit respected. It sounds almost, though, what we're talking about here are titles rather than surnames. I mean, Guy, do you, I mean, do you think it's, it's fair that we should be calling people by their titles? Well, yeah, I suppose so, within reason. But if you call everybody simply by their surnames, if I just started calling you Prendergast, it would make you sound like you're my sort of gardener or something like that. Like, <laughs> now, listen here, Prendergast, or some sort of weird, weird screwball comedy. Yeah, obviously, with surname has got to come title. I mean, that's that's almost really a given. But I think that sense of detachment and deference, it's not a kind of bath thing, you know. It's, it's not kind of punching down. It, it works both ways. I think it's easier for people you employ or your clients to refer to you by your surname as much as it is for you to refer to them. It, 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 it's, not a, it's, it's not a snobby thing. It really isn't. It, it, it definitely, I think, helps. And I, and I like Mary's very flash Caribbean example. And I also love the way she's called Miss Mary as well, which is a kind of a mixture of the sort of Christian name and title which it sounds to me like a very Caribbean barman thing to do, which is somewhere <laughs> I'd much rather be than here. But no, I, I just had to text an MP I never met this morning for a piece I'm doing. And I, I texted him Mr X. And I just think it was probably appreciated, even though he's probably a couple of years younger than me. He responded using my first name. And then on we go with, with first names. But I just think when you're opening the batting in any conversation, I think you'd do well to use it. And, and it, it occurred to me because this wretched Lieutenant General Tyrone Urch, who, who I mentioned in my piece, was talking to Martha Carney on Radio 4 the other day, and he just kept referring to her as Martha. And it was the repetition which also got to me as well. I mean, that's a slightly separate issue. But I thought, <laughs> what right does Tyrone have to call her Martha? Was Martha using his title correctly and surname correctly? Yes. I mean, I think at one point she referred to him as, as General Urch, but she didn't start calling him Tyrone. And if she had, it would have been strange and, and wrong, yet it seemed all right for him just to keep calling her Martha. Mary, do you think this is a generational issue? Well, I've noticed that in my iPhone, the address book, everyone, it starts with the first name and then the surname. Whereas in the past, address books always had the surname and then the first name, didn't they? But so we're being brainwashed into this false sense of equivalence, as Guy observes aren't we? And also it's meant to be matey, but as Guy observes, it's not helpful if your plumber makes a mistake and then you have to suddenly get angry with him and yet you're talking to each other as though you're friends. Do you think, though, that part of it comes from a sort of nervousness where, Mary, you obviously write a lot about social etiquette, where people perhaps don't know what title to use or whether someone does want to have their surname referred to. I mean, is that is that a part of it, that it's just easier to call people by their first names? Well, it's terribly awkward. It's absolutely complicated. I remember hearing that when the Duchess of Devonshire went to Downing Street for a meeting with Cherie Blair when she was doing that book on prime ministers and she walked in to talk about Harold Macmillan, who was her husband's uncle, she walked in and said... Hello, I'm Deborah Devonshire. And Kate Haste replied, and I'm Lady Bragg. <laughs> I think, Mary, by the way, while it occurs to me, you can probably change your phone to use surnames uh, listings 
in contact. So you can sort of change it to sort of old fogey mode or formal mode, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's possible. I'm sure that's possible. We, you know, we, we can, you know, revolt against this sort of brainwashing. <laughs> well, what I do if I have a service call and they say, can you give me your name? I say, it's Mrs. Wood and your first name. Just call me Mrs. Wood, it's simpler for various reasons, and then they move on. Yeah, and do you find, Mary, that most people sort of respect that? Well, I think they're relieved because they're always anxious about what they should be calling you, aren't they? And on the one hand, they don't want to be pompous either, but on the other, they don't want to alienate a client. So they would prefer you to tell them. But of course, you sound pompous doing it. Yeah, and it's just occurred to me, I've never met you in my life, and, and I just called you Mary for the first time. <laughs> I literally have to eat my own wretched words. It's just so complicated, the whole business and who wants what, you know. I've got another anecdote from the high society area which was that when Cherie Blair was staying at Balmoral, she said to Princess Anne, Princess Royal, she said, call me, Princess Anne had called her Mrs Blair, she said, call me Cherie, and Princess Anne replied, I'd rather not. <laughs> but Guy, you make the point in your piece that it's obviously a bit tricky when even our Prime Minister is known by his first name and we've, you know, Prince Harry has renounced parts of his title. It, it does seem as if there's a sort of a backlash against people using titles and using surnames. Is that, is that a deliberate political move, do you think? I'm sure you're right. I'm sure it's a political move that is born out of a cultural tendency to make things less formal. And I, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not so much of an old stick in the mud that, that I don't welcome things being a bit more loose and a bit more relaxed. And, you know, I, I don't wear a tie when I'm at home. And, you know, it's, it's, you know I don't smoke a pipe. You know, so I, I, I think, you know, it, it's fine broadly. But I think that there should still be room within the public arena in which people detach and distance themselves from each other. And I, I, I just feel that it's, it's just gone too far one way. I, I would obviously not like it if we all had to refer to each other by, you know, our surnames and our titles. That, that would be silly. But I think that, as I say, when you're, when you're starting some form of conversation with someone, especially someone with whom you have some form of non-friendship relationship with, a professional or client relationship with, I think, I think you're, you're well off using surname straight off. I agree with you because otherwise it devalues the currency of real friendships. Yeah, I agree. My first name really is there for my mates initially. <laughs> and Guy, just finally, you, you talk about researching you know, as a historian for your pieces. How do you sort of double check that you've got someone's name correct? Where, where do you turn to? If, if it's someone who's dead or someone I'm actually, someone who's alive. Someone who's alive who you're going to be addressing. Someone who's alive. Well, when, I, when I'm talking to them in person. Yeah, you say that in your piece that you yeah. make sure to use their name. How do you make sure that you're correct and what? Yeah, no, and I think it, it's useful. I mean, especially when you're talking to, I mean, invariably in my job, I'm talking to old men and a lot of them would have been, you know, in the army or reached sort of grand rank. And I, I always think that a lot of them are quite proud of it, even though they pretend not to be because we all, we're all terribly modest, aren't we? And and I think that it's sometimes nice when you start referring to them as, as general or colonel or whatever it is. And, and, and also it sort of... It, it makes them realise that even if they're happier for you to use their first name, that you've got that initial bit of respect and deference of what they've achieved. And and I think also, yeah, it also helps you get their name right. <laughs> Just as you say, you know, people called Nielsen could be spelt Nelson or whatever it is. You don't know. I mean, it's very difficult. So, no, you're right. I think I think it just creates a, a quick, obvious dynamic and structure that, that can be thrown away by both parties within seconds or maintained. Mary and Guy, 
or should I say Miss Wood, Mrs. Wood, <laughs> and Mr. Walters? I didn't Correct. know she asked yeah, that. Yeah, that's fine. That'll do, that'll do. Prendergast. Well done. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Mr. Prendergast. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as Robert Peston's diary, Andrew Wilson on why Scotland should be independent, and I've written about the court of Carrie Simons. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week.